Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 10th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. Back in the 30s. 37, baby. What a year. Truly. <laughs> Should we hop right in? Should we say where we are in space and time? What's going yeah. on in 1937? We've been so, in the 60s a lot. We have, but let's reset our minds back to the 30s. You might be thinking 1937, Great Depression, but you might also be thinking... Sounds like World War II is on the horizon. So should we check in on the war front? Sure. Lots going on in the war front. World yeah. War II is on the horizon, but <laughs> we're busy with other stuff too. Don't yeah. you worry. The Spanish Civil War is happening right now. This is the year of the bombing of Guernica. And also Picasso painting Guernica. So great times. What I didn't realize and you didn't realize when we looked this up is that Guernica was carried out by German and Italian planes. So fascists I did not unite know for that fun. they were already getting together in their fascist solidarity. But looking across the world to the Pacific front, anything mm-hmm. going on there with other we fascists? We also have the Sino-Japanese war happening. So everybody's very unhappy everywhere in the world. Yes. Japan left the League of Nations because they were like, we would like to conquer some other countries. So we're just going to dip. I mean, I don't like anybody who tells me when I can or can't conquer other countries. I think it's fun to join an international agreement that says you can't, you know, invade other countries and then just be like, well, now I want to. So I guess I'll just leave. Yeah. Instead of just invading other countries and facing their disappointment, (laughs) you're like, you know, it's not really fair of me to stay here. I do plan on invading other countries, so I'm going to have to leave. Also in not exactly war news, but still fascist news, Stalin was doing the most this year. Yes, he was signing decrees and the like to have hundreds of thousands of his citizens murdered. So that's a lot, guy. Maybe just chill out. Yeah. In British news, Mm -hmm. George VI of the King's Speech King. The King's Speech King. You all know him. Is coronated this year. Mm -hmm. And at the same time... Neville Chamberlain of appeasement of Hitler fame becomes prime minister of Britain. So we're heading in a great direction. Everything's going to go really well in the next few years. Mm -hmm. Interesting flight news this year. Okay. You like that I'm leading with interesting? (laughs) (laughs) The Hindenburg disaster happens this year. So big oopsie. On that no front. more blimps for us Boo. until maybe the future. Yes, yeah, they're on the blimps. horizon. <laughs> I hope so. Also, in flight news, this is the year Amelia Earhart disappears uh-huh. while trying to become the first woman to circumnavigate the globe. Huge news, both yeah, kind of bad. So, good job, flight news. Yep, we also have Abraham Lincoln's head dedicated (laughs) at Mount Rushmore this year so that he was the final head. This is the end of Mount Rushmore. It is complete. What a very weird fucking thing to do, America. It's it's one of our oddest, if not our oddest monument and also like really aggressive towards the Native Americans. (laughs) Just like a real aggressive move. Yep. 
Of many aggressive moves. Yeah, honestly. I was like, it's hard to say this is the most aggressive no, move. It just seems like a petty move. A petty. That is what it is. <laughs> it's petty. Aggressive. Uh, okay. And I know you want to talk about this one. This is like our best news, I think, from this Certainly year. Certainly for you, yeah. The first edition of The Hobbit is published, so Tolkien is ramping up. Mm-hmm. Working through all of those World War I feelings as World War II approaches. I think this is objectively the best news that we've covered this but year. You're not wrong. It's fine news for me. I don't care. Yeah, it's I neutral. Probably like news is the best news of everything we've said. Maybe equivalent to George VI's coronation for you. Better yes. news for me, but like. <laughs> I'm like, the King's Speech guy's getting it done, guys. Good for him. Yeah, he's gotten over a stutter. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, not a great news year, if we're being honest. No. So we haven't mentioned that 37, we're still doing 10 nominees this year. So this is going to mm-hmm. be one of our classic half sort of bracket episodes where we, yeah. we, we'll talk about five movies this episode and five movies in a part two, which means we'll get right into also what was happening in film this year. Yeah. So the five highest grossing movies of the year this year, one is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You may have heard of it. Two is Saratoga, three, Maytime, four, The Good Earth, five, Stella Dallas. And then worth mentioning, because we will be talking about these momentarily, Captain's Courageous is number seven, Lost Horizon, number eight, and A Star is Born, number nine. Anything particularly notable this year in film? Yes, you might have heard me mention Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. There's something a little bit special about this movie in that it is the first ever feature length traditionally animated film. Big news. That's awesome. Yeah. Way to go, Walt. <laughs> Pretty cool. So that's definitely deserving of some conversation. So what won this year was a movie we haven't mentioned. Because we haven't mentioned any yet. Well, yeah. yeah. The Life of Emile Zola. Mm-hmm. A Paul Muni picture. Oh, Paul. What was the general consensus? We usually like to talk about how do people feel at the time? How do they feel now? What did we find? We would love to talk about it, but we found nothing. I hate to tell you guys, there's not a lot to look at sometimes when you're going into 1937 news. I can't just pull up the like variety 1937 edition where they talked about, oh, the scandal of the life of Emile Zola winning. I don't know. Maybe they were mad. Maybe they were happy. It's really hard to say. Yes, unclear. Historical consensus now, again, we didn't find a ton of stuff where people were like, oh, what a travesty of the year the Academy had in 1937. Right. But probably the most important film to come out of this year was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs because of, you know, its historical nature. Exactly. And because of its historical nature, it is also the only film from 1937 that we find on the AFI Top 100 list. Yes. So with that in mind, we are going to break format a little bit. Normally, we would get right into our matchups and declare winners and losers and decide the five losers that we talk about this episode. But because we have exactly 10 films, we're like, okay, we have to talk about Snow White. How are we going to do that? Where are we going to do that? We're going to do it right now. At the top, baby. (laughs) Giving it the respect it deserves. And then we'll see if it needs to be carried over till episode two for consideration. But yeah. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I guess, to sum it up really quickly for anyone who doesn't know this story, (laughs) there's a young princess named Snow White. She is very beautiful. Her stepmother wants to be the most beautiful woman in all the land. And when her magic mirror tells her that Snow White is now more beautiful than she is, she's like, nah, can't be having that. 
So she gets her loyal huntsman to take Snow White out into the woods to murder her so she can be the most beautiful. And when the huntsman isn't able to do it, she finds out from the magic mirror that Snow White's still alive. Snow White has run off to go to get away. And she's Mm -hmm. ended up at the house of seven dwarfs who by day work in a gem mine and by night come home to this messy house and she cleans it up for them and she befriends them and they're all going to be friends forever and live together but mm-hmm. yes the evil stepmother finds out she's still alive because of course the magic mirror is like nah snow white's still the most beautiful she's not dead and so the evil stepmother disguises herself as an old crone and has an apple that will poison snow white if she bites it it'll put her into a deep sleep and she brings the apple to snow white snow white takes a bite oh no she's she's fallen asleep and Snow White had met a prince earlier who she'd immediately fall in love with. And he comes back mm-hmm. at the end and kisses her. And then she's fine. <laughs> That's always what solves it. The queen knew yes. this, by the way, when she made the potion. Yes, she was true. like, oh, is there anything that will wake her up? True love's kiss. That won't happen. And so she first love's anyway. kiss. Oh, sorry, Not even love. true love's kiss. First love's kiss. Well, she, we'll get into this, but this movie's pretty dark. She was pretty convinced that the dwarves would bury her alive. <laughs> Yes, she was like, they're not going to know about this. And so they're just going to bury her alone. Oh my God. That's rough. That's rough. So, how do you feel revisiting Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? I mean, it's a fun time. You got to admit, there's fun songs. Everybody loves Hi Ho. (laughs) What's Mm -hmm. not to enjoy? Obviously, the achievement of it is very impressive. The animation looks great and it's cool that they made it there's obviously your classic early disney sort of gender issues it's not amazing that she's like oh my worth is to cook and clean for all of these various men i found in the woods but it's sort of you're just gonna get that with anything from this era but yeah it is very dark that's an interesting thing to talk about especially since it's based on a Grimm's fairy tale which we all know are dark <laughs> yes. sort of like there's this interesting strain of darkness through a lot of classic children's literature yeah so i haven't seen this movie since i was a little kid so i'd forgotten some of the details like the mm-hmm. fact that she wants the huntsman to put snow white's heart in a box, in a box. and i was like that's intense it's very visceral <laughs> it's like <laughs> quite a thing to explain to a child and then the other two parts that I was like, oh, my God, were the part where she was cackling that the dwarfs were going to bury Snow White alive. I was mm-hmm. like, that's a lot. And then she comes downstairs to go out of her little cave to take the apple to Snow White. And there's a skeleton that's reaching for a jug of water. Yes. And she kicks the jug of water like, oh, you want a drink? <laughs> You're like, that guy just died and desiccated down there. Like, what's going on? Who she's was that? The, she's the evil queen. It's what she does, which is interesting to me because it's sort of a classic case of villains getting too cute, right? Because she's very evil and clearly could just murder this girl. And you're like, why doesn't she just murder her? She keeps coming up with these weirdly complicated situations to have her killed when like she had some guy locked in her basement until he just dried up and died. She seems fine with murder. But yeah. instead, she's like, let me come up with this endless sleep potion that has. You know, oh, like, she wants her to be buried maybe alive. Maybe just stab the girl. I don't know. Maybe she just doesn't want to directly kill anyone. You know, letting someone die of thirst. Yeah. And, and ordering apple. someone to murder another That's person. quite the same thing. 
Yeah, I mean, if this came out today, right, you'd be like, the plot's a little thin, things yeah. happen quickly. Da, 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 da. I mean, it's short. It's like 80-something minutes. It's very so. short. But yeah, I think the animation holds up. It's still so beautiful. In particular, I was obsessed with the animation when after the Huntsman doesn't kill her, he's like, flee, and she runs it's into so the woods. Good. Yeah. And all the trees are transforming into monsters and we're sort of seeing her fears. Well, and, and to me, that scene echoes two years later in The Wizard of Oz, right? It feels a lot like the yeah. trees sort of grabbing at Dorothy. Yeah. And then the other sequence that I really loved was when the queen was mixing the potion. Me too. I love cool. that. She puts in the various elements of the potion and then they are like the sort of smoke illustrates what the potion elements do. Love that. The dwarves are very cute. The dwarves are great. I think Grumpy is, his presence is hilarious. When she first arrives, they're like, it's a girl because they all think it's a monster. And he says, she's a female and all females is poison. They're full of wicked wiles. And you're like, it's a lot. (laughs) Love <laughs> for a kids movie but he comes around he does and then yeah the only other thought i had watching this revisiting it was like what other uses do you think the magic mirror could have that the queen is like severely it seems like he could probably be pretty helpful but instead every day she's like but who's the most beautiful <laughs> he's like this again he is like quite the snitch though all of a sudden like as soon as the the murder plot has been foiled he's like yeah she's still alive this whole thing happens over basically two or three days. Yeah. Like as soon as, as soon as she tries to have her murdered, she finds the dwarves and then she knows immediately she's not dead. And then she concocts the poison. And then the next day she goes to see her and you're like, wow. Also, yeah. she's really bonded with these dwarves in a day. It's true. And then the movie sort of yada, yada, yada is her being asleep. There's just text until the prince shows up and then yeah. she just goes off with the prince. And you're like, it's... It, Again, if like you made it today, the plot would be different. But I will also say for this year, this is not the only thinly plotted movie we watched this year. Absolutely not. I mean, you do end it with the prince wakes her up with a kiss. The dwarfs who have been taking care of her sleeping body for the last however long, she's just like, goodbye. And she leaves. And you're like, are you ever going to see each other again? Like, (laughs) what about the poor dwarfs? But yeah, it's thin, but I will say I also appreciate how sort of efficient it gets into the story at the beginning. There's not a lot of waiting around. It's all just like stuff's happening. You're like, mm-hmm. great. I'm a child. I have a short attention span. Get me the details. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's Snow White. It's seminal. It's, it's seminal. Good. Exactly. It's beautiful. Oh, we should say in the style of a lot of early and still modern children's movies it functions a lot as slapstick comedy there's a lot Mm -hmm. of great bits and that's sort of how you're carried through it on the strength of the funny you know sneezy blowing everyone around the house and dopey i mean yeah i laughed multiple times watching this movie it's funny yeah it's funny it's funny it's scary yeah 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 yep it's good stuff so we'll see if when we get to our winners episode where it, where it stacks up but we wanted to make sure that we talked about it so that does bring us to the meat our bracket where as always we will walk through the movies the matchups are decided by rotten tomatoes score if anything had the same rotten tomatoes score ties are broken by number of reviews so our highest rated movie will go up against our lowest rated movie and we will decide a winner or loser if we agree we'll just move on if we disagree we'll have to come to a consensus about which movie should move on let's do it okay so to start off with we have our number one seed 
A Star is Born, a drama about an aging actor and his relationship with an ingenue. Stars Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, directed by William A. Wellman, was written by Dorothy Parker, Alan Campbell, and Robert Carson. Nominated for eight, it won one. Best Original Story, although it also won an honorary award for being the first color film to receive a Best Picture nomination, which is Mm -hmm. kind of cool. Very cool. This is against our number 10 seed in Old Chicago, a drama about the O'Leary family before the Great Chicago Fire. It stars Tyrone Power, Alice Faye, Don Amici, and Alice Brady, directed by Henry King, written by Sonia Levian and Lamar Trotty. It was nominated for six, and it won one. No, sorry, one, two. (laughs) Best Supporting Actress, Alice Brady, and Assistant Director, Robert D. Webb. That used to be an award. It did. Okay, on the count of three, we'll declare our winner. Yes. One, One, two, two, three. three. A A Star star is Born. born. Yay. Great. Okay. That brings us to our second matchup, our number two seed, Stage Door, a dramedy about a boarding house for aspiring stage actresses. Stars Catherine Hepburn, Ginger Rogers, and Adolf Manjou. It's directed by Gregory LaCava, written by Maury Riskin and Anthony Vailer. It's nominated for four, and it won zero. Hmm. This faces off against number nine seed, 100 Men and a Girl, a comedy about a young girl who tries to find work for her unemployed violinist father. It stars Deanna Durbin and Leopold Stokowski. Directed by Henry Coster, Written by Charles Kenyon, Bruce Manning, and James Mulhauser. It was nominated for five and won one. Original music score. One, two, two three. Stage, stage door. door. Yes. That brings us to our next matchup. Our number three seed, The Good Earth, an epic about Chinese farmers in the early 20th century. It stars Paul Muni and Louise Rayner. It's directed by Sidney Franklin. Written by Talbot Jennings. Tess Schlesinger and Claudine West is nominated for five and won two Best Actress for Louise Rayner and Best Cinematography. This is against number eight, The Awful Truth, a screwball comedy about a couple that gets divorced. It stars Irene Dunn and Cary Grant, directed by Leo McCary and written by Vigna Delmar. Nominated for six, it won one Best Director, Leo McCary. One, two... Three, the awful truth. truth. Yay. Great. Next is our number four seed, Captain's Courageous, a drama about a rich boy who was rescued after falling off a boat by fishermen off the coast of Massachusetts. It stars Freddie Bartholomew, Spencer Tracy, Lionel Barrymore, and Melvin Douglas. It's directed by Victor Fleming, written by John Lee Mahin, Mark Connolly, and Dale Van Every. It's nominated for four and it won one. Best Actor, Spencer Tracy. And number seven, Dead End, a drama about the slums of New York. It stars Sylvia Sidney, Joel McRae, and Humphrey Bogart. Directed by William Wyler and written by Lillian Hellman, it was nominated for four and won zero. One, one two, two, three. three. Captain's, Captain's Courageous. Our final matchup, our number five seed, Lost Horizon, a drama about a British diplomat who was kidnapped and brought to Shangri-La. Stars Ronald Coleman, directed by Frank Capra and written by Robert Riskin. It was nominated for seven and it won two, Best Art Direction and Best Film Editing. And number six, our winner, The Life of Emile Zola, 
a biopic about French writer Emile Zola and his involvement in the Dreyfus Affair. It stars Paul Muni, Gloria Holden, and Joseph Schildkraut, directed by William Dieterle and written by Heinz Harold, Geza Hersig, and Norman Riley Rain. It was nominated for 10 and won three. Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Joseph Schildkraut, and Best Writing, Screenplay. All right. One. One. Two. two three. Three. The, the Life, life of, of Emile Zola. Zola. Oh, wow. I love when we're in five out of five. <laughs> okay. So our losers are the number 10 seed in Old Chicago, the number nine seed, A Hundred Men and a Girl, the number three seed, The Good Earth, the number seven seed, Dead End, and the number five seed, Lost Horizon. Do you want to just okay. go in that order? Why not? Sure. Tell me about In Old Chicago. Okay. So. I have to preface this with when we looked up what this movie was, it was described as a musical about the Great Chicago Fire. And it's yeah. very much not that at all. No, so, that could have been fun. Someone should make that. Yes. And so in this movie, it is about the O'Leary family. People will probably have heard of Mrs. O'Leary's cow, who supposedly started the Great Chicago Fire. But we join them when they are moving to Chicago as a family. The father of the family dies along the way and is basically like, you're all going to achieve happiness in my stead in Chicago. And so then we jump forward to when the mother now has a successful laundry business and her two sons are grown and one of them Three is... Three sons. Oh, right. Yes. It's a third son, but he doesn't factor into the film at no. all. He will no longer be mentioned after this point. So the two meaningful sons, one of them has become a lawyer. He's like the good son on the nice path. And then there's the troublemaking son who's like a gambler and getting in trouble. And so the troublemaking son gets himself into this business opportunity. He's involved with these bad people. He starts a nightclub with this woman that he likes. And the good son is trying to be the good son and do his lawyerly cases and stuff. Then politics sort of enter into it so there's a guy who's trying to run for mayor and he's kind of crooked and so he gets involved with the less good son and that son is sort of propping him up but also planning to work against him by convincing through a third party his brother to run for mayor thinking that once his brother is in office he'll then be able to control him better than this other guy hard to say why he thinks that'll work out but either way we've got these two parties running for mayor and there's tensions in the town because the poorer parts of the city are you know there's like crime there and yeah it's really interesting this isn't the only movie where this comes up but there's a lot of talk of slum clearance throughout these films and you're like i guess it seemed like a good idea at the time yeah so the good son brother part of his platform is he wants to clean up the city by getting rid of these slums and he has various reasons for saying he wants to do this and one of them foreshadowingly is that they are all made out of pine and he's like it's a fire trap (laughs) and so Mm. you're like yeah it kind of is a fire trap as we see later on so anyway the climax all happens when it is revealed that the bad son was undercutting the shady politician to get his brother elected the brother is elected and then the brother still wants to clean up the slums which is where the less good brothers establishment is so he tries to get the brother's woman to testify against him the guy's very upset about it he asked the his girlfriend to marry him they get married and then it turns out he only wanted to marry her so she couldn't testify against him and he's like screw all y'all and he tries to raise a mob against his brother and while all of this is happening 
the fire starts. And so this is like the last third of the movie where there's the fire and everything's getting out of hand and a mob is coming for the head of the mayor and then people are getting separated and injured and the fire is happening and the brothers do reunite, but the good son gets shot and killed in the course of this and the rest of them survive and they watch the city burn down is kind of the end of it. Yeah. Thoughts on in old Chicago. Well, okay, so it was a disappointment to start because it wasn't really a musical on the old Chicago. Oh, the, the only musical element is at the club, the woman that the one of the sons is with is a singer. So occasionally she does a musical number, but it's not yes. like part of the plot. No, it's not a West Side Story style musical where the music moves the plot forward. It's one of these old timey musical films where there are just numbers yeah. in the film. And yeah, like the other thing we read that, initially that this was based on a book but then it turned out that that was a falsehood that they had pretended there was a book to prop up this film because mm-hmm. like my major thought as i was watching is like did someone hear about the great chicago fire and say to themselves like i wonder what the o'leary's were like before this happened what could have led <laughs> up to this Cause yeah, I was like, why like, is this who cares <laughs> i mean they were real people much as the, sure, the cow story is fake but they were yeah. real people and one of the sons had like a nightclub and you know yeah I, I guess the story is there if you want it, but who wanted the story? I also watched the trailer for this movie before I watched it. Apparently this movie took 22 months to shoot. And oh my God. $2 million. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it was the fire stuff. It's hard to do I mean, fire stuff. Yes, I think it was. And I will say the fire was awesome. Yeah. It does make me have a bone to pick with Gone with the Wind, which part of the reason it's propped up is because like, oh, wasn't the burning of Atlanta cool? And it's like, yeah, but this city also burned down and this was cool too. So we could just watch this movie. I mean, it's not great, but. Yeah. <laughs> better (laughs) yeah fair enough the stuff with the brothers could have been interesting but it's like not all there and then you have this weird third brother who barely exists what was even the point of this kid they could have just eliminated that brother yeah it's just really to have more peril during the fire because he's married the woman they have a little baby and it's like oh the baby there's just some wild stuff in this movie like when we first meet the love interest for the younger son she's doing a performance and they go into the club and they're like oh my god she's so beautiful look at her and she's singing this minstrel song about like a black man who wants to go back to virginia because he misses it and he can't wait to get to heaven to see his master and you're like why why this song why would this be the way you would introduce this character i don't know and then the younger son is assaulting her, but then she falls in love with him, so it's fine. Yeah, no, we do have to talk about the fact that they're, the entire basis for their relationship is he buys a date with her or something. There's like this auction element yeah. at the very beginning because he's fallen in love with her over the course of her song and she wants no part of him. So they sort of just usher him out. And then he is in her carriage when she's trying to get home and, and assaulting her and she manages to lose him. But then he shows up in her house later and is assaulting her and it's like, so fucked he's very aggressive very violent he's like chasing her around her apartment and then the conclusion of it is him being like i basically just wanted to talk to you about a business deal and she's like oh why didn't you say so and then all of a sudden they're in business and in love and you're like yes bad no bad choices and then there's the element where he tricks her into marrying him which is so awful and i don't think the movie really deals with it but also like i think 
the court can't compel a wife to testify a husband. I don't think marriage prohibits it's not that she a wife. Can't, yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Women, wives are allowed to testify against their husbands. They can't be forced to testify yes. against their husbands. So now she has even more of a reason to testify against him. Yes, it's not a gag order once you're married. It's just you don't have I mean, to. I don't know if the rules were different in 1937, to be fair. Know. But yeah, what did you think about this one? I mean, I felt similarly. The fire was cool. The relationship stuff wasn't that well carried out. I found the tricking her into marrying him twist to be very predictable. That's Mm -hmm. the first thing I thought when he asked her to marry him because there's no buildup to his turnaround. They confront him with the testimony. He walks out angrily. And then the next time they see each other, he's like, we should get married. I forgive you. (laughs) They're like, this is fake. I guess I just didn't think about it because I'm like, well, what what will that do? But yes. No, I was like, I saw it coming. I don't know why. But as soon as he asked, I was like, this is why. And then, you know, it's just a sort of everything is very convenient. Like the he's mad at his brother. The fire starts. He thinks, oh, my God, my brother must have be burning the city down just to get back at me. And you're like, have you met your brother? He's very law abiding. But he, for some reason, is convinced of this immediately, raises a mob to go kill him. And then, of course, as soon as he turns out he was wrong, he's like, oh, no, what have I done? And then the mob of his own creation kills the brother. And you're like, yeah, I get it. It just was like, fine. I think my main thought about it, like you, was who asked for this? Why do we want this story? (laughs) Who in the in the world has ever wondered? But what about the O'Learys before the fire? Like I, I don't care. Right. I was thinking too. Like if you made this movie today again, I don't know why it would be about this. But if you just made a movie about there's the one brother who's good and the one brother who's bad, and we really saw the bad brother like building his empire in a more like in depth way, and they mm-hmm. did more character work, that could be interesting. Well, and then you could get into some actual interesting moral gray areas where it's like maybe the good brother's not so good after all, since mm-hmm. he's willing to just tear down all of the houses of every poor person in the city. Right. <laughs> like there's stuff that you could have mined there, but I don't feel like they really were, no. you know, interrogating any of it. No. So that's in old Chicago. Yeah. I wouldn't watch it, guys. It's not great. No. That brings us to our next movie, A Hundred Men and a Girl, a movie where when we first saw it, we were like, that title is very scary. (laughs) Yep. We were terrified of the title. It was not as scary as we anticipated. No, this is what it is about. This is about a girl whose father, as we said, is an unemployed violinist. It is the Great Depression after all. It is. It's tough. He's been trying to get a job. And while he's doing that, he finds someone's purse one day and he tries to return the money, but he can't. So he comes home and he's able to pay their rent. And he unfortunately tells everyone he got a job and his daughter's like, yeah, you got a job. And it sets off this series of events, misunderstandings and miscommunications where she is trying to get her father an actual job. So when she finds out he didn't get a job, she goes to return the purse and she meets this fabulously wealthy woman who offhandedly is like, yeah, I'll fund a an orchestra of unemployed yeah. guys and she's like wow it's gonna happen but it turns out this wealthy woman's pretty flaky and she like goes to europe and she didn't tell her husband about it and so deanna durbin's just like running around trying to get this orchestra together to get this famous conductor to conduct them and to get it on the radio and in the end it all comes together and it happens and it's very nice yeah and, and the hundred men are the orchestra yes men, the men in the orchestra and we should also say i guess this is not the only movie with this real composer Stokowski. 
Mm-hmm. And so he plays this role in it where there are a lot of scenes of him just composing his orchestra. <laughs> so there's conducting like, his orchestra. Sorry, not composing, conducting his orchestra. And so like, that's a fair amount of the film. It's just that there's this real com- conductor in it. And you're like, oh, yeah. I guess that's cool. There's <laughs> And it's also it. an excuse. Apparently Deanna Durbin was like a teen singing sensation. So she has a few numbers in it as well. So yeah. sort of similar to in old Chicago where it's not a musical, but there are musical numbers in it. It's just sort of like a loosely cobbled together set of events that enable them to play some classical music and sing some songs. I don't have a lot of thoughts about this. <laughs> no, I don't either. I mean, it's interesting because so little happens and, and you're like, it's all very obvious how it's going to happen, right? The girl, well, when the when the dad says he has a job, but he doesn't, you know, she's immediately going to find out. When she finds out and goes to talk to the rich woman and the woman is like, sure, I'll find this orchestra, you know she's bullshitting. So that's all going to mm-hmm. fall apart. And then it all hinges on the way that it comes together is her husband is this radio host and then we have Stakovsky. And so she's trying to convince each of them, the radio host, to put them on the radio and Stakovsky to come conduct the group so that they, he will put them on the radio and the way that it all comes together is she accidentally tells a reporter that it's going to happen and he prints it and then they're all just their hands are all kind of forced <laughs> and yeah. so then the the radio guy is like oh I guess I will sign them if the composer is going to conduct them and then the conductor is like I wasn't going to do it but now I, I've been talked into it because they go play for him <laughs> so it, like very conveniently all comes together right. but you're just sort of like Okay, sure. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, and it's one of those things, too, where multiple points of conflict are people who just can't get a sentence out. Yeah. Which is always frustrating. When the radio guy comes to sign the crew and she has realized that he's doing it because she accidentally told the the new reporter that this was happening yeah the father is like whoa we would love to entertain your offer and she like eight times is like but dad but dad there's something you don't know i have to tell you this thing you don't know and they're all just like shut up little girl yeah well earlier in the film too he tries to explain to her that he didn't actually get a job and she's like i'm so excited i'm gonna go out we should have dinner da, 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 da. and he's like i have to uh, uh, uh. and it's like just spit it out anyway yeah just talk this movie's people. pretty hard to find i would not go out of my way to find no. it unless you love Deanna Durbin singing. Yes. But you can probably get like some clips online yeah, or something if you fine. want that. Okay. Let's talk about the good earth. The good earth. <laughs> That's all you, baby. Um, no. Okay. I'm going to try to be quick because it's an epic. So it's about this farmer couple in China in the early 1900s and it begins on their wedding day they of course have this arranged marriage so we start with the groom who's very excited that it's the wedding day and a woman's coming to the house and they're finally going to have someone to cook basically that's <laughs> what he's very excited about and so they meet they get married they find that they're fairly good partners with each other they're building their farm she gets pregnant Things are proceeding. He starts to be able to buy a little bit of land around the town to try to build up, you know, his farm. And then they are the victims of a famine. So everything just sort of dries up and they are unable to grow anything. And everyone around town is wishing that they would help them out because they have all this land, but there's nothing they can do with the land because there's nothing growing on it. So at this point, they have some kids to support. It's really rough. They have to kill their 
ox that they love and eat it and it's sad and it gets to a point where they could sell the land but it wouldn't be worth it because people are just going to pay them pennies for it and so they decide to keep the land but go south where they will hopefully be able to find some work to tie them over until the rains come again so they go south they're working you know they're living in these horrible conditions because everyone from the north has come to the cities to try to get jobs and they're getting minimal amounts of work they're hardly able to feed the kids but then revolution is brewing in the town at the same time so it ends up happening that there's rioting and looting going on when the army comes through town and so the wife takes part in the looting because you know you're gonna loot a little bit when you're this poor and all these rich people are around so she ends up coming across a bag of gems and she very nearly gets executed but luckily she just misses that and so she has these gems and they've heard that the rains are back up north so it's like let's go back up to our land and we'll be able to grow stuff and i also have all these gems and we're gonna be rich and it's gonna be great and so it's like she's solved all of their problems classic Mm -hmm. and he's like this is amazing i'm selling all your gems and she's like can I just keep my two pearls? Because I would like to look at them occasionally. I love the pearls. And he's like, I guess. And he's like, it was partially you that made this happen for us. And I'm like, partially? But anyway, they become very rich. He buys the grand house in the town where they lived. They have tons and tons of land. Where she had been a slave before. Yes. They have tons of land. They have various crops they're hoping nothing will ever get them down again they have all these people that work for them now their kids have grown up and of course turned into like annoying rich kids which rich people who are poor and then become rich and then have kids always hate that their kids are rich and you're like you did this <laughs> and yeah. so anyway the husband has become discontented because money corrupts everything so he falls in love with this beautiful woman that he wants to bring on as his second wife when he had initially laughed at the idea of ever having a second wife his first wife consents to it because she wants him to be happy. She's really very self-sacrificing. And Mm -hmm. so he does bring this wife in. It doesn't make him happy. She ends up having a flirtation with the son, which is weird. (laughs) In the process of this, the husband takes the pearls from his wife to give to his new wife. Ungrateful. Not cool. Not cool. So he gets into this conflict with the son when she has the flirtation with the second wife then he's about to throw him out everything's going to shit but locusts have arrived so a new you know plague of nature coming and so luckily he's sent one of the sons to like agriculture school and he's like we can fight back against nature that's what i went to school for so they the whole town organizes to try to make a fire line to protect some of the crops and if we can save some then hopefully he'll be able to use that money to support everyone they all reconnect with nature in the process of fighting the locusts and it brings them all together again and then the wife has been getting kind of steadily sicker the end of it is one of the sons is getting married and at his wedding day dinner or whatever the uh, husband gives the pearls back to the wife now that he's Mm -hmm. broken up with the second wife and she takes them and then like happily dies and then he's basically like i oh you were always the land i i should have appreciated you yes that's the good earth Yeah. Oh, and I didn't really say, but this is part of it, that Paul Muni and Louise Rayner, white people, are playing this Chinese couple. There are like two elephants in the room with this movie. The first is the yellow face, which is, yes, Paul Muni, who we love. Yeah. 
ill-advised choice here, Paul. Is not Chinese. <laughs> not at all. Not even a and little bit. And neither is Louise Rayner. Louise Rayner! There are Chinese actors in this movie. They end up casting Chinese, or at least Asian people, to play their sons. Mm-hmm. So, riddle me that. Interesting, yeah. The other elephant in the room is Louise Rayner. So, Louise Rayner! <laughs> you may remember from our 1944 episode that after not winning Best Director, Best Picture, something in there, Billy Wilder, after the awards ceremony, went outside and, and yelled, what did, the Acad- what did the Academy Awards even mean anymore? I mean, Louise Rayner won too. Academy Awards. Louise Rayner. <laughs> this was when this yeah. was when Double Indemnity yes. didn't win, I believe. But yeah, we're with you, Billy Wilder. Louise Rayner. <laughs> so we've been saying that to each other since we did that episode. And I gotta know, how did you feel about Louise Rayner? Should she have won two Academy Awards for Best Actress? I mean, she was hampered a little bit by the fact that there's really not much going on with the character, but I found her very flat. There's not yeah. much happening with her performance here. She just sort of lets everyone shit on her throughout the thing and then dies and you're like okay (laughs) yes she's she's not doing a good job of externalizing what's going on internally with olan she's sort of just like wide-eyed and open-mouthed and yeah kind of swerving around sort of (laughs) (laughs) now as much as paul should not have been in this film oh yeah his performance was good i've never not enjoyed paul muni in, at this point in my life, I've only seen a few of his movies, but he's good in them. It was a bad choice. Yes. I understand that all of the people making this, and we did some research because we were like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? It's based on a book yeah. that won, like, the Nobel Prize. <laughs> it won the Nobel Prize yeah. and a Pulitzer. It's a very well-intentioned book. It is written by a woman who spent a lot of time in China with her missionary parents. The intent of it is to, like, bring attention to the humanity and suffering of these people and make you connect with their struggle. I understand why the actors would want to be in the story, but again, just bad choices. <laughs> just just don't. No, Paul Muni, yeah. bad idea. I mean... I don't think this movie is good enough to outweigh that. Like, if we lost this movie to time, yeah, it's fine. I mean, we've had to do a little bit of this, like, racism reckoning in the past on this show. And we've done things like say, okay, well, Stagecoach, if you could ignore the racism part, is a really good movie. I'm not, I'm not going to say that about The Good Earth. It had elements that no. were interesting. And then it was, like, not all in all that amazing of a piece. We don't need it. Right. No. And it's, you know, the racism is more front and, and center, probably. But Paul gets so mean to his wife at the end. Well, he, he really just mean. fucking sucks. Like, at the beginning, mm-hmm. they're trying to, like, have this life together and be partners and make, a, you know, themselves win. And she's really on his side. And you're like, you have gotten this great wife, my guy. You really need to appreciate her. And he, it seems like he's trying to at first. I mean, part of it is mm-hmm. it's very clearly about, like, money corrupting your soul right like they all get fucked by becoming rich and then as soon as they're able to like take off their shirts and fight fire and be connected with the land again then they are like oh i really was acting terribly so you get it you get the you know narrative of it but yeah it is rough that the husband fucking sucks so much in the middle and you're like why did your wife saved everything for you she made you rich she supported you in everything she convinced you not to sell the land when you wanted to sell the land like she is the reason for all of your success and still you're like i've become enchanted by this woman i need a second wife and you're like why (laughs) you suck 
And then, yeah, the only other thought I had about this movie is the locust scene. I enjoyed the locust scene as well. And that was another cool fire scene. Good fire in these films. But Mm. yeah, meh, the good earth. No, you don't, you don't, you don't need it. Unless you're a Paul completionist. We might be, who knows, by the end of this. Okay, that brings us to Dead End. Dead End takes place in another slum. This is the other movie where people are like, we should clear the slums. And you're like, that's really solved the problem of people not having enough money to live. But anyway, so it takes place in a slum of New York over a period of like a couple days again. It's a pretty short story time wise. And there's kind of a couple things going on. You've got the Dead End kids who became a thing after this movie, which is a group of teens, preteens somewhere in there who just are out on the streets getting into trouble. One of the Dead End kids, his older sister, has a job, but she's helping with a strike that's currently ongoing because their conditions are fair enough. But she's been raising him. Their parents died and she's trying to keep him from going down a bad path. Meanwhile, she has this guy she's in love with who went to college to be an architect but can't seem to find work. And she spends the whole movie mooning after him while he's fallen in love with this rich lady. Because there's some like gentrification that's happening. This really fancy high rise has been built. Yeah, it's all based on a real building in New York. Yeah. And so the guy has fallen in love with this rich lady, but he's like, I don't know if we could be together. I don't know if you could stand to be poor. And she's like, I've been poor before. But then one time she goes into one of the slum buildings and she's like, I haven't been that poor before. <laughs> That's like real so poor. I don't know about this. I thought I'd been poor, but this, no. And then at the same time, we have Humphrey Bogart's character who grew up in this area and has become like a real gangster. He's murdered people. Mm-hmm. He's on the run. He's also had plastic surgery to Hell make yeah. his face look different. But he's come back to see his mother and his old girlfriend and the guy who's the architect used to run in the streets with him and he recognizes him. He's like, you got to get out of here. You're no good. And Humphrey like goes to see his mom and his mom's like, I don't know you. She rejects him because he's a murderer. And then he goes to see his old girlfriend and she's gotten older. No, it says she's had to become a prostitute is what has happened. I know. But I think in the movie it plays like he sees her in the light of day and he's like, oh, gross. And you're like, yeah, you didn't really show what it happened. Well, they can't really say like, there's a code. Yes. The code really <laughs> hampers this movie. Yes. In the play, she apparently is ravaged by disease. And in this movie, she just looks fine. Anyway, so he's like, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to get back with my girlfriend and my mom rejected me. So I'm feeling really bad. So I'm going to kidnap a rich I just, Well, I mean, he's got to get something out of coming home to the old neighborhood. That's what he says. And so he's planning to kidnap this rich kid, but he gets stopped by our, our architect friend who ends up shooting him. At the same time, the younger brother has got into a conflict with the dad and the rich family and he's cut his hand because like the dad grabbed him and he tried to squirm mm-hmm. away and he cut him with a knife and so he's on the run the sister doesn't want him to get sent away to a reform school or whatever but he ends up getting caught and is sent away to a reform school and the sister's like i'm gonna do everything i can to get you out of there but then at the end the man reveals i am in love with you i'm not going to get together with that girl and she's like oh okay cool and she stops being sad well, her brother's going to reform i don't school. think that she stops being sad it'll reoccur to her she's been weeping the whole movie and she brightens right up despite the fact that something else is happening now in the film which you should probably be more Mm -hmm. upset about but whatever more Mm -hmm. upset about but whatever okay what did you think about this movie there were things that i really liked about this movie i loved the direction 
I thought that there are some mm-hmm. awesome shots from the very beginning. There's like the first five minutes of it. I was like, this is starts with like a model of the city. And then we pan down into this really yeah. awesome set that they have made for it. And then there's reverse projection stuff going on. That was like just from King Kong a couple of years ago. They really done a lot with the visuals of this. And I really loved the set. And I loved how they shot the set, the scenes towards the end when he's like chasing Humphrey Bogart and you're looking like, down at all of the stairwells and stuff they just they made a great use of the set it looks super cool the story is sort of whatever there are elements that are interesting they're trying to do some class conversation i'm intrigued by them having this sister be in a union and striking at the time of it paired up with these rich people who are just sort of like ruining everyone's lives by existing in their presence basically (laughs) and so i think the the dead end kids are sort of whatever like i don't have a lot of thoughts about the dead end kids getting up to their nonsense it's funny to me that they tried to start a career as the dead end kids after this always fun to see humphrey bogart i was intrigued by what plastic surgery was done to his face (laughs) i thought it was fine what did you think of it i also thought it was fine I didn't love the dead end kids. I was hoping since yeah. they did make a career out of it, that I was going to come, come out of it and be like, oh, these dead end kids are great. I can't wait to see them in more Le- things. Oh my but God, can like, you believe oh how God. great these dead end kids are? Yeah. No. This is sort of our irritating children matchup between this and Captain's yeah. <laughs> There's something about the structure of this movie that was like unbalanced or off to me. I don't know if like, th- mm-hmm. it's based on a play, right? And so I don't know how closely it follows the plot of the play, but I don't know if they were like, man, these dead end kids lean really into the dead end kids. I'm just, but yeah, I don't know. Something about the structure of it wasn't quite balanced right to me. Yeah. Bogart's decision to kidnap that kid goes nowhere, like really fast. I don't know. It seems sort of underbaked as well. And then I guess they're fine that he just got shot. Well, by someone. what's interesting about it is, like, this guy is, you know, on all the most wanted lists or whatever. He's a very, uh, the, the yeah. cops all want to get him and he has changed his face so they won't recognize him when he comes back. But as things all devolve into this violent situation and our main architect guy ends up in conflict with him and his right-hand man, they're chasing each other through the streets. They're shooting at each other. There's, like, stabbings. There's all sorts of violence happening. And then they come across Humphrey Bogart's dead body, and they realize who he is. And then they're like, oh, man, somebody shot this guy. I wonder who it is. And they find out it's him, and they're like, great, you're going to be a hero. There's money. There's a reward for having shot this guy. And you're like, what? <laughs> this is the Wild West. What are we doing? How is it? I would think there would at least be a bit of an investigation so that he could then say it was self-defense. But no. Right. They're just like great vigilante <laughs> justice. Love it. 10 out of 10. And then, yeah, I think I just I didn't really care about Drina's obsession with the architect. So at the end, when he's like, I am in love with you. And she's like, oh, great. OK, well, let's get her, my brother free. And she stops moping around. Maybe I was like, together oh, as a team, oh, they'll no. be able to get her brother free. Probably it doesn't not. seem like it. I also loved when they were talking with the, the old guy who the brother cut and they were like, can't you give him another chance? And he's like, there's nothing I can do. And You're the like, only one pressing charges. Press charges. I actually really liked that scene when Drina confronts the old guy and she is trying to appeal to him. Yeah. And you're like on her side because all these kids got fucked and this one guy just happens to not like this kid. So he's like, send him to reform school. And so she's saying, guy, like, hasn't anyone ever forgiven you for anything? And you're like, this is a really nice point. I'm sure he's been forgiven for all sorts of shit in his life. And yet he is just like, nothing I could do. There's nothing I can do. My well, hands like, are tied. Like, if I forgive this one child, then everyone will think it's okay or whatever. And you're like, what? 
That is factually <laughs> untrue. I'm with you. I mean, the relationship with the architect is sort of whatever. I did find her performance mm-hmm. compelling, whether or not there was much to the relationship. I liked her story about how since she was a child, she's been imagining being on the subway and accidentally meeting a rich man who like takes her away from all of her problems. So it's like, if only, girl. Yeah. <laughs> like It's not going to happen for you. So yeah, I mean, it's sort of brushes up against a lot of interesting topics there are things you can be drawing from what it's trying to say about class it's interesting that it's in this real place it and it does start it does start right i'm not making this up with telling you about the land on the river and how it used to be poor people that lived there and then the rich yes. people were like "Ooh, waterfront property and sort of came in and pushed all of the poor people mm-hmm. away from the waterfront so yeah. it is based on this real building that people live in in new york that has been like brushing up against a lot of historically poor neighborhoods and now really really rich people live there that's an interesting element of new york and cities generally but story is fine and i I did think it was interesting again to see this in a time where they're like slum clearance is social progress what do we do with all the poor people (laughs) yeah we (laughs) have it's the great depression what are they supposed to do Seems like we're just going to break up their community and social ties, but okay. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. At least somebody's trying to do something. <laughs> okay, well, that's dead end. Let's get to our last yeah. loser. Lost Horizon. Lost Horizon. So this is a movie about a British diplomat slash adventurer slash writer who he's world renowned he's supposed to start an ambassadorship Mm -hmm. job just as soon as he finishes rescuing all of these white people from china where there's a revolution going on and they don't want the white people to be hurt so it started actually on a pretty rocky note but we'll get into that so then he and his brother who's there with him and these few remaining white straggler people who are on the last plane out of this part of china their plane unbeknownst to them has been hijacked by this mysterious figure and so they think that they're Mm -hmm. escaping to wherever they're going to fly home but then in the morning they wake up and realize they're flying the wrong direction and so they realize they've been hijacked they keep flying north they don't know where they're going eventually the plane ends up crashing and the pilot has died in the process of the crash however and so they're like oh man we're really far removed from civilization i don't know how we're gonna get out of here maybe we'll send somebody for help but then lo and behold these people just show up and are like hey we have warm clothes for you and you should come with us and so they get taken over a mountain and into a valley where the mysterious land of shangri-la is so they get taken into Shangri-La and it turns out that this is this place that nobody knows about but it is a magical wonderful world where there's something special in the water that helps you live forever basically and also they've been amassing all of this culture and art and literature of the world to be in this perfect little solitary place that nobody knows about and so at first they're all reacting in different ways. Our main character, who kind of didn't really want to go become this ambassador, is like, well, let's just see how this plays out. (laughs) Could be interesting. I don't know. His brother, meanwhile, is not handling it well. He's the reverse side of the coin. And he's like, why are we here? Who are these people? I have all these questions. We've been kidnapped. Why won't they let us leave? Because the people who are running the place are just sort of like, well, maybe some guys are going to come in a few months and they can take you. Otherwise... (laughs) Just hang out here. I don't know. And so then we have these other characters, a woman who has been sick and was supposed to die of some cancer she had but hadn't. And so now she starts to like feel better now that she's here. We have a couple of guys. One of them is a 
paleontologist who wanted to get home and share his latest discovery. And another one is a plumber who they find out that he was like accused of having a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) And so the police have been looking for him. And so then they all just sort of like settle in. People have some romances. They decide that they like this place, except for the brother. And so our main character gets brought into the confidence of the person who runs the place and is told he was actually brought here for a reason. They had read his writings and they really liked what he had to say. And this is all a very intentional experiment to collect all of the knowledge of the world and wait around until all of the horrible warring that's going on in the rest of the world just resolves itself. And... (laughs) Until all the bad people yeah. kill each other and the only people left are the people fit to live in this paradise peacefully. And so then they will be like, just like, we're here to rescue you. We have all of the knowledge of the world and everything you could ever need to know. And the meek shall inherit the earth is the idea. And so, of course, our main guy becomes really enamored with this idea because like he's so special and he's the chosen one. And he falls in love with a girl. And he falls in love with a girl. And so he wants to stay. Everyone other than his brother has also decided they want to stay. The brother has gotten into a relationship with this woman who lives there. And she and him, they like bribe the people who bring stuff into the town to take them out. They decide they're going to leave. He tries to convince his brother to go. And his brother tells him the whole story about why he wants to stay. And then he says, but it's not actually a good place. It's actually a terrible place. The girl that I'm with says that it's horrible and everyone mistreats her. And she's been trying to leave. And she comes in and is like, yes, I've been trying to leave. And they're lying about the fact that everyone is living forever. It's all just this crazy way to keep us all here. And so now that his eyes have been opened, he decides to leave. The brothers and the girl depart. They're on this trek through the wilderness to get home. And then as soon as they get out of the bounds of Shangri-La, it turns out the woman actually is very old. <laughs> she reverts to her normal age had she not been in Shangri-La and immediately dies. And then the <laughs> brother who was dating her can't handle it. He freaks out and throws himself off a cliff. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so our main guy, instead of turning around, for some reason goes forward to another town in the process of it, is injured, hits his head, can't remember anything about Shangri-La. They're taking him back to London because they've discovered him, and then he remembers about (laughs) Shangri-La. So he runs away to go back, and then the British people launch like a years-long journey trying to find him before he gets to Shangri-La, but they don't catch him. He makes it to Shangri-La, and then the guy that was supposed to find him is like, seemed like he really believed in it. Interesting. And that's like the end. (laughs) Yeah, there's the whole end of the movie where they're like, wow, he went on this crazy adventure. It's just a guy telling everyone else about it. Yeah. Did the version you watch have stills in it? Yes. I think all of them do. Okay. Did, did you get the little bit at the beginning yes, that describes? Yes, yeah. Okay. So what has happened with this film is the prints of it have been lost over time. Well, what happened was over the lifespan of the movie, they cut 25 minutes from the mm-hmm. film in subsequent releases. They had lost those 25 minutes. Yeah. And so they went through this painstaking process to find anybody who had film of this movie. They found all but seven minutes of it. They found the entire score and were missing seven minutes of the film. So then they 
sort of weave in stills so right. you can see what's going on in the scene over the sound that you can still hear from yeah. the movie. It's not just the score, it's the dialogue too. So the soundtrack to the film. Yeah. And that's interesting. I actually found that it worked fairly well. Oh, I yeah. No, I think it's any issues. It's, with it. it's fine. And I think it's really interesting. Like, I wouldn't judge the movie and be like, why did they make this choice? Because they didn't. No. Right? It was the only choice. <laughs> yes. And it's other it's, than like hire somebody to do, <laughs> to reenact. To do, to reenact it. No, it's really impressive work. It's actually, I think, quite cool. But I, I wanted to check before we talked about yeah. it because I wasn't sure. I was watching one version online and it didn't seem to have the stills in it. So I just I wanted to make sure. I wonder if they just skipped those seven minutes then. I think they probably do. So I didn't love this movie, which was disappointing because I usually am a fan of Mr. Frank Capra. Capra. There's like weird optics in it, right? So we start off in the movie. We're like, we have to rescue these white people. They explicitly say white people. We're not putting that onto the movie. There's like a title card that says they must rescue 90 white people before they're slaughtered by the Chinese. Yeah. And you're like, this is starting on a bad note. Yeah. (laughs) But luckily the main character does sort of express his distaste for the whole thing. And he's like, of course they sent me in to get all the white people, but they don't care about all the civilians that are going to die. And you're like, all right, at least he's trying to not be an asshole. And then we get to Shangri-La and the way Shangri-La is set up is this white priest discovered it. Yeah. Like, like, why did a white person have to discover? (laughs) I know. And then he apparently has maybe built this complex over this valley where all these native people work and do all the labor. And it seems like all these white people just live in this mansion and get to do art all day long. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yikes, this is our utopia. (laughs) All the hard labor being done by these Chinese people and these white people just hanging out is not good. My overwhelming feeling was it felt kind of like an episode of Star Trek, except in the episode of Star Trek, Kirk would burn this place to the ground. Like this would be the reality where this is like a secretly corrupt space. And there's a million episodes of Star Trek like this where they stumble upon a utopia and then find out it's it's built on garbage, right? And yeah, Kirk would explode it and then they would just leave. But it did not help, too, that the woman who plays the love interest, the main love interest, is Spock's mom in the original <laughs> series. It's <laughs> funny. It's like, this woman looks yeah. so familiar. I'm on your wavelength. I was writing notes like, if this society is so perfect, why is it imperative that there be one white guy in charge? <laughs> right. And also, like, it feels like the message of the movie is if you're an ethical person, you should just retreat from the world and let yeah. all the bad people destroy each other. But like, what about all the innocent bystanders who are also being murdered by exactly. the bad people yeah. and can't get to Shangri-La? The moral of the story was very troubling, I thought. Yes. And then I think they also just handle the woman who wants to escape very strangely. Like, yes, she was lying about being old, but she still wanted to get out. Yeah, and you're left to be like, is this just because she was tired of living and wanted to die and so she concocted this story? Like, what what has led her to do this? They don't really examine that. Whether or not no. the other things she said were true. Like, she talked about every time she tried to leave they would lock her in a room and like these like... Yeah, and you're like, is that true? I don't really know. Really intense moments of cruelty and you're like, so... What? And I also like the the fact that the brother just immediately committed suicide was like, okay, I guess that was hilarious. (laughs) He was like, if if this is true, I have to accept that all the rest of it is true and I will not be doing that. (laughs) He sees her old wrinkled face and he just screams and jumps off a cliff and you're like, okay. (laughs) 
And then, so yeah, I also read that the initial cut of this movie was six hours long. So I wonder if they had Jesus. filmed the whole adventure of him getting back well, to Shangri-La. Yeah, when, at the end when they're like, and then he did this and this and this and this. I was like, that's another movie or series of movies you yeah. just described. Sounds cool. <laughs> Guess we don't get to see it, but fine. So yeah, I just, I thought the overall message was bad. Yeah. I didn't know what I was supposed to take away from it that was anything positive. I agree. But I do want to talk about my favorite thing about the movie, okay. which is Thomas Mitchell, Hell yeah. who we love, mm-hmm. and his relationship with Lovey. Yes, that was quite fun. <laughs> so for, for some reason, the way that this movie is structured, we have our main brothers who then each are paired off with a love interest pretty quickly after they get to Shangri-La. Mm-hmm. And then we have the woman who is sick, and she doesn't really have a pair. She's just there sort of like getting better (laughs) like trying to you know handle that i guess and then our other two characters are thomas mitchell the the criminal slash uh, plumber Mm -hmm. and then i think his name is love it but very quickly in the movie thomas mitchell starts calling him lovey and the two of them are paired at all times through the (laughs) the process of this movie and their relationship is hilarious so you have thomas mitchell who is at first he calls him brother so something and the guy's like i'm not your brother and then he calls him sister and so then this gets them off onto this path of him giving him these affectionate nicknames mm-hmm. and they're just sort of interestingly paired the paleontologist doesn't want it like him but then clearly he grows on him over the course of the movie and then there are these sort of explicitly flirtatious comments that they make to each other all the time there's a point when the two of them need to go off and hang out on their own and so thomas mitchell is like lovey let's you and i play a game of bridge cards and lovey's like i'm i'm thinking and he says what about some double solitaire as a matter of fact i'm very good at double solitaire <laughs> then i'm your man come on toots he says and they yeah, go play they cards together and you're like what is this it's cute they were my favorite characters the two of them they were fun they were fun my only other thought about this movie is so yeah there's this set of what they call porters who bring them materials every once in a Mm -hmm. while who are sort of like sherpas right they're experienced at climbing the mountain they're the only people who can get up there and then they very irresponsibly are shooting guns at our protagonist and it triggers an avalanche (laughs) and they all die are there other porters or are they never getting any more supplies that's a good question hopefully there are other supporters other porters but i don't know I was like, I don't feel like an experienced set of mountain Would climbers. Would just be shooting guns for fun in the middle of mountains? Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The, the ending of the movie sort of spirals in a way that none of this is adding up. Yeah. Well, and at first you're like, okay, this is interesting. They're here discovering this new place and you're learning the rules of it and why does it exist and what goes on here. And you're like discovering what it's all about. But then when you get into the what it's all about, you're like, oh, these are all very disappointing answers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I didn't like anything that you said in the what it's all about section. Yeah. So that was a bummer. All right. Well, those are our five losers. Unless you have any other thoughts about Lost Horizons. All the thoughts I could ever say. All right. Well, we should get to our episode one conclusions where we pick a best of the worst and a worst of the worst. Yes. I have my best of the worst. For me, it is dead end. I don't disagree with that. I think Dead End probably is the best of the worst. I struggle a little more with the worst of the worst. Because I guess all of them had a quality. There was something about (laughs) them where you were like, okay, this isn't horrible. 
There weren't any that I just like hated, 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 I mm-hmm. don't think. But also they are all deeply flawed. Yeah. <laughs> I think I find more interesting about The Good Earth and Lost Horizon than I do about An Old Chicago and A Hundred Men and a Girl. Mm-hmm. But A Hundred Men and a Girl just barely feels like a movie. Right. <laughs> but it's not like offensive. It's just there's not much there it's, there. Yeah. And then in old Chicago, I, there's a lot. Like, I was disappointed by what it was because it wasn't what I wanted it to be. But then also you're left with the question of, like, I just don't understand the purpose of any of it. Why does this movie exist? It's a story that needs to be told. And why do they What's introduce your... the love interest with a minstrel song? Why would you do that? It's unnecessary. But, I mean, none of the love interest stuff was handled well because it's just no. him assaulting her repeatedly until she's in love with him. It's just so wild as a modern viewer for them to start, like, mooning over as yeah. she's singing the song about... He falls <laughs> in love with her like that. Yeah. I am in a similar place, right? Like, a hundred men and a girl is, is so thin it is the hardest yeah. to find, so like that's the one yeah. that you should at least try to track down since it takes more work. <laughs> but it's hard to get over the, the bad choice of the good earth. I don't know. Yeah. I might be most disappointed in Lost Horizon just because I do love Frank Capra, and it's like, sure. yikes. What the hell was the yeah. point of this, Frank? I mean, I assume it's based or something, right? Um, yes, it is based on a book. So I assume the moral of the story comes from that and it's just bad. And I understand the idea of wanting to make this sort of like adventure movie. But yeah, it, it could have been way better than it was is the thing about Lost Horizon. It's a four-way. It's a four-way, it's a four-way tie. four-way tie. Worst of the worst. The only one of, let's say this, the only one of these movies that I would advise anyone to ever try to watch is Dead End. Yeah. I, I don't think that you need to watch any of these other movies. No. Let's leave it at that. That's fine. Yeah. So what are we talking about next time? More of this. 10th Academy Awards continued. We will talk about winners. So that's exciting. There was some fun stuff. So I'm excited to get into it. All right. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, or concerns, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. Check out our website, OscarsWrongPod.com. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.